Well, this, this is a great world that we live in. It really is. There's a lot of really wonderful and good and true and beautiful things in this world. It is a great world. When God created it in the beginning, we read several times in Genesis chapter 1 that God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And quite frankly, there's still a lot about this world that is very good. There is, however, and I think we all know this, a lot that is not very good. We know that there's a lot of messed up stuff going on in this world. Right now, here in Barbados, we have our problems, but there are other parts of the world where there are far more severe problems than anything that, that we face here in Barbados. I mean, we did without electricity for a few hours earlier in the week. Um, you know, and, and everybody's up on social media complaining about how we were without power again. But there are people in the world who, who live without electricity, who live without power. There are people without clean water, etc., etc. There are there are all kinds of difficult uh, circumstances that people face. There are natural disasters, uh, things like tornadoes, one of which. I just saw in the news hit southeastern Missouri, I think it was yesterday. Um, you just see the devastation that's left in the way. You think about tsunamis, earthquakes, all kinds of things. There are obviously all sorts of problems like that. And then we come to this problem that no one likes to talk about, which is, which is moral problems, also known as sin. And this is one that makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable because we can we can kind of say okay well the earthquakes are no one's fault and something like for example an underdeveloped nation it's it's a systemic problem but you might you might say it's maybe no one person's responsibility if i can put it that way and so you can be you can be in the system part of the system but still complain about the system as if it has nothing to do with you. So you can still kind of keep even some of these systemic things at arm's length. But when it comes to moral problems, when it comes to sin, you can't keep that one at arm's length. Because the reality is, it's not something out there, or I should say this, it's not merely something out there that happens to you. It is, and we know Often, we hear terrible stories of uh, abuse or neglect or aggression or theft or adultery or various ways that one person sins against another and a person, a third party, is truly a victim of the sin that was committed against them. So it is something that we experience happening to us from the outside. But it is not merely that. It's also something that we do. So when we begin looking at what sin is and we think about God's commandments, well, the first one is you shall have no other gods before me. And we might, we might literally bow down before some little statue of wood or stone or whatever else. And we can see very clearly, yes, I've broken that one. 
but we might not go ahead and bow down before some kind of other statue and we might say therefore I'm not an idolater I don't have other gods <coughs> but the reality is whatever we make ultimate in our life that is our God you think about the way that Jesus summed up all of the Ten Commandments and all of the commandments in Scripture saying that they're all summed up as loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? I think only the most arrogant among us would say, yes, I have. When we put it like that, we can see that we're, we're complicit in this as well. So before we even go beyond the first commandment, we can see that we're all indicted. But if we go on and we start talking about reverence for God and honoring Him with our time and then respecting the proper authorities and legitimate authorities that He's established in this world and sins pertaining to aggression and sinful anger culminating in murder. Maybe you haven't killed someone, but Jesus said if you've even been unrighteously angry at someone, you've broken that commandment in your heart. We go on and we think about coveting, bearing false witness. And all of these things reveal to us, if we're honest, yes, I've done those things. Again, maybe not, maybe to the nth degree. There, there are people who have murdered. There are people who have committed adultery. There are people who literally bow down before other statues and stuff. So sometimes that's the case. But even if that's not you, Jesus teaches us that even breaking these things in our hearts renders us guilty as sinners. And the reality is that our sin makes a mess of our relationships and our lives. And sometimes we compound sin by covering up sin, which is really just adding sin to sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13, gives us this little principle here. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now listen, if you've ever been sinned against in a serious way by someone that you love, you probably know the feeling of being willing in your heart to forgive them and to reconcile with them. And how frustrating and how difficult it is to see that relationship restored. And how much more painful is it when instead of confessing and forsaking their sin, instead they conceal their transgressions and try to act like it didn't happen or it's not quite so bad as you think. It's adding sin to sin. See, even this sense of self-righteousness, of not being willing to admit just how sinful we are, this is sin in itself. And this actually just compounds problems. So we have a world 
that is in many ways still very good, but we have not only the creation itself broken by the curse, which leads to stuff like earthquakes and tornadoes and, and whatnot, but we have also this human complicitness in rebellion against God, whereby we've decided we're not going to live the way that God wants us to live. We're not going to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We're not going to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're going to break all of his commandments to whatever extent we see fit, whatever extent our consciences will allow us and we feel comfortable doing. And then if anyone calls us out on it, we're going to conceal it and compound the problem further and act like we're still good people. If you're thinking clearly and carefully and soberly about what I'm saying, you know that it's true. Just look at how messed up so many things are and trace it back, and it's always, 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 always at the root of it, not living according to the way that God would have us to live. And very, very often it's compounded by not admitting that sin has occurred and not being willing to confess it and forsake it. This is the world. Kind of good in some ways, but frankly, really messed up. In John's Gospel, he uses the term the world to mean this, not just, not, not this earth that we live on or the physical universe, but he uses the term the world to talk about the, the collective response of humanity to God's laws and God's rules, whereby, whereby we rebel against Him and we stray from Him, and we don't live the way that we ought, and we conceal our sins, and we act like we're righteous when we're not, and we remain in the darkness, and we practice hypocrisy, and we say we love the truth, but then when the truth is told, we oppose it. And, so on and so forth. John uses the term the world to refer to this ungodly, anti-God system, which we see operative all around us. And if you're honest, you know that you're part and parcel of that system. You're complicit in it. Now listen, if I was God, y'all can be thankful that I'm not. <laughs> Because if I made this world very good, and then I saw the way that humans have gone and messed it up, and the way people carry on, like you get frustrated with the way people carry on in this world. Even though you're not really that much better than the people you're frustrated with. But God is holy, holy, holy. So if you think you're frustrated with how people get on in this world, Imagine the way God thinks about it, right? If I created this world very good and then everyone started doing what they're doing now, I would not love the world. I'll be frank with you, all right? But what do we read here in this passage, John 3.16? For God so loved the world. That's a profound point right there. That the way that God is disposed towards this world, which is 
in rebellion against him. Again, we're not talking about now, we're not talking about the physical earth and the universe and whatnot, which, which have no moral agency. We're talking about this society of men who rebel against God and we live our own way and we do what we want to do instead of doing things God's way. When God looked at the world, he loved it. Just think about that. God loves the world more than I love the world. God loves the world more than you love the world. God loves the world more than all of us put together love the world. Just think about the, the beauty and the grace of that. If you've ever done something really bad and you truly felt contrite about it, and you truly needed someone's forgiveness, you needed them to love you anyway, and to love you through it, and to reconcile with you. You know how good it feels when you find that in spite of how bad you are, they still love you, and they're willing to love you anyway, and love you through it. This is the disposition of God towards this world in rebellion against it. We, we often think of this phrase, so love. We often think of it like this, for God loved the world so much that he gave. But the sense of it, I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to make God's love small. I just talked to you about how big it is. So I don't think it's wrong to say that God loves the world so much. But the, the grammatical sense of it is more like this. God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world. When God looked upon this world, he loved it. And he loved it in this way. He so loved it. It's, a, it's, it's not a way we would speak colloquially or casually with one another. But it's grammatically correct to say, I so loved my wife that I did the dishes. Right? Um, it's the manner in which I made love an action. That's what's being conveyed here. How did God love the world? He gave His only Son. This is how God loved the world. And this brings us, of course, theologically, to the concept of the Trinity, which I'm not going to digress to expand upon at length here, but if you're not familiar with Christian theology, or maybe just familiar in a very cursory way with Christian theology, we believe that God exists as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doubtless you have questions about that. So do I. There has been much ink spilled over the centuries about that uh, assertion, but I simply mention it to make clear that who we're talking about is not a created being, who we're talking about is not an inferior being. Who we're talking about is the co-equal Son of God. Co-equal with the Father. Co-equal with the Spirit. Co-eternal. So in other words, what we have here is God sending God to this earth. So often when we see a problem, we say something should be done about this. You go. Right? And we, we defer the responsibility to someone else. 
I mention the Trinity in order to emphasize the point that what God does here is not loves the world and sees that something should be done and sends someone else. This is God's self-giving, self-going, self-rescuing uh, love. He sends the co-equal, co-eternal Son. We just sang about His willing sacrifice and see the destined day arise. Elsewhere, later, later on in John's Gospel, in fact, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. So we also should be clear, as we talk about this, if you've never heard it before, that it's not that the Father coerced the Son to go and forced Him against His will to go, but that there was harmony within Godhead. And so the Father willingly sends, and the Son willingly accepts the mission and comes. And there is one will within the Godhead concerning our salvation, where the Father is pleased to send, and the Son is pleased to come. So this is God's self-giving, self-going act of love towards the world in rebellion against Him. The goal of it, we read at the end of the verse, was that people should not perish, but have eternal life. That people should not perish, but have eternal life. In the beginning, when God created the world, saw that it was very good. He promised that if Adam sinned against him, that death would enter the world. And in fact, that's what we see all around us. That's why death exists. That's why things are falling apart. That's why there's disorder and chaos even in our souls. Why not only our bodies, but our souls also are coming apart. And think, you feel, even inwardly, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. There's this principle of unraveling and decay and pain and suffering at work in your body, as well as in your soul, as well as in this physical world. Death is in this world because in the beginning, Adam sinned. But it's not just that Adam sinned. As I said at the beginning, we're all complicit in this. Later on in Scripture, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we read that the wages of sin is death. Wages are what is owed. Right? You don't go on payday and ask your employer for a gift or a loan. When you go and you ask for your wages, you're asking for what is owed. What is owed, what is paid out on account of sin, what we deserve, what we have merited because of sin, is death. So that's the baseline that, we're, that this world is operating on. The wages of sin is death. We deserve it. The seed, the principle of it is at work within us. If we go on and read after John 3.16, it says here, in verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. You don't have to do anything to be condemned. You don't have to do anything to die physically and to die spiritually and to die even eternally in hell after this life is over. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is where things are at. So God sent 
his son into this world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his only son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. You might say, well, what kind of God, what kind of God would condemn people? What kind of God would punish people for their sin? Well, the answer to that is really quite simple. A just God. Whether we like to admit it or not, the reality is it's perfectly just for God to hold us accountable for our actions, to exercise His rightful authority over us and follow through on what He said He was going to do if we lived in rebellion against Him. It is just for God to condemn us. And our own hearts cry out for justice at least sometimes. Think about it. You might say, I don't deserve to go to hell. But if you grant for a moment, for the sake of argument, that there is a hell, even if you're skeptical of it, just grant for the sake of argument. You can think of people who you feel deserve to go there. Right? And, and you're chuckling, but it's a serious point, right? Just think about it. If we, if we start naming just terrible, heinous crimes, right? You think about school shootings. Right? Or you think about rape and molestation, you know, various terrible things. You know in your heart that some people deserve to go to hell. So what's, what's happening here is that you agree with God that some people do. But you just don't think that your sin is bad enough that you do. Right? But remember who's the holy one here and who's the sinner here. Right? So the, this is like the criminal instead of the judge, the guy in the defendant's box instead of the guy at the judge's bench deciding what the verdict will be. And you're going to be biased to cut yourself and the people around you who you don't think are so very bad some slack. But even you know some people deserve to be punished for their sin. Some people deserve to go to hell. And what the Bible teaches is that even you do too. And that it's your skewed sense of proportion. It's your skewed moral balance that acquits you and justifies you when you sit in the defendant's box. You deserve to perish. So do I. I'm not being self-righteous about this. You deserve to perish. So do I. We're condemned already. God looked upon this situation and loved us in this way that He sent His Son so that we would not perish. To me, what is, not, what is more astounding is not so much that there is a hell as that there is a heaven. Right? Because remember I said... I'm not as loving as God. If I was God, there probably wouldn't be a heaven, at least not for you. <laughs> if, if I was God, and I lived in eternal bliss with the holy angels, and then I looked down on earth and saw all the nonsense that people like us are doing, I'd be like, I don't want them up here with us for eternity. Right? So what's so shocking is not really that there's a hell, but that there's a heaven. What love this is. Right? What a God this is. What grace 
they say. So here's the mechanics of it. You deserve to be punished. God sent his son into this world to take the punishment that you deserve for your sin. You have no righteousness. In Isaiah, the prophet says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Note that it didn't say all of our sin is as filthy rags. The worst things about you is filthy rags. It says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So you put all the best things that you can on your CV, your resume, and you submit it to God, and God says, no, nah, filthy rags. See, you have, you have a paucity of righteousness. You have a lack of righteousness. And you have a sentence hanging over your head that you deserve to perish. But Jesus came at the behest of the Father to substitute himself for us, to live righteously in our place, to earn for us a righteousness that we don't have, and to die in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So that, look at what the verse says, John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but eternal life. So, what does it mean to believe in him? If you just sit here this morning and you think, yeah, that's a, that's a powerful story. I believe that. Is that it? Well, the sense of it, which is unfolded in the rest of Scripture, which we don't have time to unfold at great length this morning, the sense of it is more like reliance, trust, more so than just cognitive acknowledgement. The Apostle James says later on, even the demons believe and shudder. They know who Jesus is. They know what he came to do. They know the facts of the gospel. And they believe it. They're not stupid. They know that it happened. And yet, obviously, there's not the trust and the reliance on Jesus, which is required. Let me illustrate it like this. In Toronto, there's the CN Tower. If any of you have seen pictures of it, I'm sure. It's tall, thin. Uh, structure, but at the top there's a viewing deck. Almost looks like the shape of a hamburger on a skewer. Alright? So up at this viewing deck there's a glass floor. And when you get off the elevator, or if you're brave and fit, if you took the stairs when you get to the top, you have the opportunity to walk off of the concrete floor onto the glass floor. Now there's signs all around that says, I don't remember the exact details, but there's signs all around that says something like, this is strong enough to hold 16 elephants or something. Like it's very, very strong. But it's over a kilometer down to the street below. And so when you look down, there's still that sense of fear and trepidation for some, not for all. Some people are very confident that the floor will hold them. Other people are stepping very carefully, very tentatively around the floor, and they're not very sure that the floor will hold them. But they're both on the floor. You see? 
you can differ in degrees of how confident and how trustful you are in Jesus. But relying on Him is something like getting out on the glass floor. If you're out on the glass floor, you are trusting, you are relying, you are leaning, you are dependent upon that glass floor. Whether you experience a high degree of confidence or much fear and trepidation, you're out there, you're relying on it, you have no other hope. You see? Objectively, you are relying, you are trusting. Now, if you were still on the concrete portion, and someone said, go, go out there on the floor, come out, come try it. And you said, no, no. They said, well, you don't believe it will hold you? You said, oh, I believe it will hold me. It's, it's like, well, do you really believe it would hold you? Because if not, why would you not come out? You see? Trusting in Jesus is like relying on that glass floor. It's putting all your weight on Jesus. If Jesus doesn't hold me, I will not be held. If Jesus can't save me, I will not be saved. You see? So some people are going to die at the end of their life. And they're going to open their eyes, as it were, at the gates of heaven. And the bouncer will say, why should I let you in? And some people are going to be like, because I have trusted in Jesus alone. And he is the sole sufficient Savior for sinners like me. And I know with every fiber of my being that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through faith in him. And it'll be like, all right, come in. And other people are going to die and appear at the gates of heaven. And someone's going to be like, why should I let you in there? Oh, well, well. Oh, I'm, I'm really trying to, my best to trust in Jesus. I only have, I only have hope in Jesus. Je Jesus is all I have. Jesus. And it's going to be the same answer. Come in. You see, it's not, it's not about you. Faith is not about something that you work up. It's not about some kind of strength that you have in you. What faith is, is it's, it's resting in Jesus alone. That the only answer, the only hope that you could give in a situation like that is Jesus. And the strongest faith in Jesus and the most fledgling faith in Jesus is still faith in Jesus. Tim Keller tells a story to illustrate this same point. An imaginative elaboration on the crossing of the Red Sea. He said, imagine the Israelites walking through when, when Moses parted the Red Sea and the Israelites are walking through on dry ground. Some of them are probably going through like, wow, look at this. This is amazing. Look at what Yahweh can do. He showed his superiority over the gods of Egypt ten times. And now here he is again getting glory over the gods of Egypt. Yahweh is so great. And other people were probably looking at the walls of water, maybe looking at the eyeballs of fish, <laughs> looking straight at them on a horizontal plane, and they're thinking to themselves, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. 
But then, but then Keller asks the question, who is more saved? See? That, that's a nonsensical question. They're both equally saved. Who, who is more secure on the, the glass viewing deck of the CN Tower? The guy with the really strong confidence who's jumping up and down on the glass and stressing everybody else out? <laughs> or the guy who's really knees knocking and feeling really dizzy and who's, who is safer? They're both equally safe. You see? Believing in Jesus in the sense that it is written here in John 3.16 is trusting in Jesus. is getting out there on Jesus, so to speak. That if Jesus doesn't hold me, if Jesus doesn't save me, I won't be held. I won't be saved. If this glass floor breaks, I'm done for. If Jesus is not able to save, then I'm done for. That's what it means to believe. So this world, yeah, it's pretty good in some ways, but it's pretty messed up if we're realistic. God looked at this whole situation, and he loved us in this way. He sent Jesus to do everything that is necessary for humans to be saved. For justice to be served in the punishment of sin. God poured it all out upon Jesus at the cross. He suffered in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins. After living a righteous life that I did not live, that you did not live, that we could not have lived, to earn a righteousness for us. By trusting in Jesus, by relying on Him, God counts it as if our sin has been punished already. And so that sentence is no longer hanging over our heads. God counts it as if we are righteous. Not because we did good things, but because Jesus did good things for us. What Jesus did is credited to us after what we did was credited to him at the cross. This is what theologians of old called the great exchange. Jesus takes our liabilities and he gives us his assets. God loved the world by sending Jesus to do this, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is why we call it Good Friday. It's actually a great day. I'm glad that it happened. It's just wonderful news. That's what gospel means. Just good news. It's just, it's just an anglicized word from the Greek language. But all it, all it meant in the beginning was good news. It really is good news. That Jesus lived and died and rose for us and for our salvation. This is what we celebrate on Good Friday. I would like to encourage you, if you're not yet trusting in Christ Jesus, obviously to do that. I'm trying to speak to you very plainly, very earnestly, because I'm, I'm concerned for your souls. I don't want anyone who's sitting here today to end up in hell. I don't want anyone who's sitting here today and hearing such a plain, clear message to neglect it to the peril of their soul. I would encourage you to think carefully about what you've heard today. To see, to see that I'm not making this up. I just explained to you, looking at the key words of John 3.16. This is what's written right here in the Bible. And there's more where that came from. Alright? If you have questions, you want to talk further, you can talk with whoever you came with. If you came with someone, or if, if you just happened to come in on your own today, I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards. 
But this is the most urgent thing that you can deal with today. Never mind what else is on your to-do list. As uh, the title of this book says, Get Right With God. Get right with God. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is good news. This is why we call it Good Friday.